Radio Real. Real Radio, your reality. Publishers, storytellers, and readers. I'm Kegia Garardi. This is Sunni Beresford. Join us in our wanderings through the literary world. Welcome to Off the Shelf. We seem to be concentrating a lot on detective fiction this season. In this episode, we interview Elsie Tyler. Len is best known as the author of the popular and award-winning Herring series, a set of humorous literary detective stories. Along with the humor, he adds, adds a decidedly metafictional twist to the novels. The series features a mystery writer and his curmudgeonly agent who find themselves playing amateur detective, despite the writer's well-expressed opinion that such investigations should be left to professionals. I think it's time for the interview. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Len. Right, um, it's it's good to be on the uh, it's good to be on the program, and thank you very much for inviting me. Excellent. Well, I've been reading the Herring Seller's Apprentice on the bus, and I have to say, I'm getting some funny looks as I chuckle at your characters. What has led you to write humorous crime novels versus something else? Yeah, um, I think you write what you enjoy reading. Um, some of my sort of earliest reading was um, a guy named Anthony Buckridge, who wrote a series about um, something called Jennings. Um, later, I read Jerome K. Jerome, P.G. Woodhouse, Evelyn Waugh, Mark Twain. Um, I really came to crime quite tangentially. Um, I was sort of trying to write straight humor, but I was having problems with my plot. Um, so I turned to crime. Um, you know, and in crime, you, you, you have a murder, you have some suspects, you have a detective, you, you, you have a plot. Um, and um, when I got to the end of um, Herring Seller's Apprentice, I discovered I'd written a crime novel. <laughs> and and that, that's more or less how I ended up, uh, how I ended up in humorous crime. Okay. So does humor take the, the lead or does the crime take the lead when you write? I, that, that, that's a very good point. I, I think I feel that I probably write humorous books with crime in it. Um, there are an awful lot of people who say, I don't like crime, um, but I do actually enjoy your books, um, which makes me feel that somehow, perhaps deep down, I'm, I'm not really a crime writer. I'm, I'm still a humorous writer who's using crime plots. Well, I can understand that because you create some really distinctive characters. And right from the first chapter, the reader knows who those characters are. For those who haven't read your Herring Herring book series. Can you give us an overview? Yeah, um, they, they are, as I say, humorous crime, or what's often called in the States cozy crime. Um, I have two narrators, Ethel Retressida, who is an unsuccessful crime writer um, who carries out the investigations hindered by his agent, Elsie Thurkettle. Um, Elsie is small, um, determined, bouncy, chocoholic. Ethelred is tall, thin, and definitely not laid back. 
Um, neither resemble anyone I know. Um, I'm not tall, for example. Um, I think having a crime writer as a detective is probably a bit of a cliche, but I know that now. Um, I just didn't know it when I actually started writing the books. Um, but that, that, that's roughly where the, um, that's roughly where the books started, and that, that's roughly what, what, uh, what happens. Great. Well, you've mentioned your two characters, and I really think you had a lot of fun naming them. First, Ethelred, which he admits to is an unfortunate name, is apparently not named after King Ethelred the Unready. What do you feel his name says about him? Well, I, I sort of wanted a writer who was just a bit pissed off about everything, including his own name. Um, Ethelred, I suppose, comes across as lugubrious, old-fashioned. Um, but the, the connection with Ethelred the Unready sort of gave him a rather um, helpless, defeated air. Um, I actually think the names of characters are, are quite important in your books. I mean, if I'd called him Dirk Stard or something, um, he would have had to have been a completely different character. Or, I don't know, maybe it would be nice to actually have a character called Dirk Stard to be numbered with that name, but to be exactly as Ethelred is. Um, that, that, that actually might be fun, too. Sorry, I hope there's nobody out there actually called Dirk Stard if there is. It's a, it's a great name. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that they feel terrible. <laughs> They've got that problems already. <laughs> well, you've also got Elsie, who says anything she wants with no filters. I noticed the, the similarity, similarity between her name and the Elsie that you publish your books under, the initials. Mm. Is, is there a connection, or is that just... Did that just happen? And does she say the things you wish you could say? Yes, it really just happened. It, it, it wasn't until I received a rather unfavorable review somewhere um, that somebody said, oh, I suppose Elsie is supposed to be Elsie, ha-ha. Um, but I actually really noticed that I'd done that. Um, but in, in answer to the second part of your question, um, yes, I, I, I mean... Um, Elsie sort of says all sorts of things that I would like to say, but um, but don't quite dare to. Um, we crime writers are usually quite polite to each other, whereas Elsie just wades in and tells writers they're second rate, they're bordering on third rate, um, or that their last novel is crap. Um, I think Ethelred often says the things that I, I probably would say, and Elsie says the things that I would like to say. I think those are excellent comparisons because I had the same thought myself. <laughs> but both of your characters have some less than complimentary views of the of mystery readers. How do you feel about your readers? Oh, I really like mystery readers. I mean, I, I meet an awful lot of mystery readers at, at conferences in the UK and in the US. Um, and they really are a marvelous crowd. Absolutely lovely people. Um, I'd written the first Elton Epperwood book. Um, and as I say, discovered that I'd, I was writing crime. And my publisher said, what do I want to do? And I said, well, I, I thought I would write non-crime um, after that. But it really was meeting um, the people who read crime that actually made me feel that I'd like to be part of this sort of broader um, mystery community, um, if, you want to, if, if you want to call it that. Um, so, no, um, people, people who read crime are, are absolutely great. They lured you in. Yes, absolutely. They they definitely lured me in. Well, um, 
Ethelred and Elsie are more complex than their banter indicates. They both damaged people, I think. Were you tempted to make the books a drama rather than a comedy? Um, I think I probably write tragic comedy rather than comedy. Um, I've never done a book with a totally happy ending. Um, Ethelred never quite ends up with the girl, or if he does, it's not the girl he wants. Um, Elsie, after an evening when the man she's chasing after is murdered, describes it as the seventh or eighth worst date she's ever had. Um, <laughs> so neither of them really have a happy, um, a happy love life. Um, I, 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 I certainly like my humour um, slightly black. Um, the, the sort of thing perhaps that, that, that Evelyn Waugh um, was, was very good at, where you laugh all the way through the book, um, and then there is a distinctly sort of downbeat ending. Um, again, that's the sort of thing I, I rather enjoy reading, and it's the sort of thing I enjoy writing too. Well, you've obviously drawn on a lot of well-known and classic mysteries in your books. Which do you think you owe the most to? I think that's, I think that's tricky. Um, people often assume, because of the titles, that what I'm writing is Agatha Christie pastiche. And I would have to admit that I owe an enormous debt to Agatha Christie, who's a writer that I um, that I admire um, that I admire enormously, um, but they're not really Christie pastiches, and um, I, I, um, I, I I almost certainly owe a debt to quite a wide range of um, of writers from the from the golden age, from the twenties, thirties, and I, I would sort of take that into the into the forties as well. Um, Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham, um, but also some of the more recent writers um, who, who are writing now, Pete P.D. James, um, Ellis Peters, who of course died um, a little while ago, um, and uh, Barbara Bine. I must say that you've got a, you've got a lovely, um, you've got. You're good at the pastiche, those bits in the first book where you were taking off other people's writers were spot on. Thank <laughs> I you. like the way you, you imitate this style. Very <laughs> cruel. Did, did, you, did you manage to guess what all of the pastiches were, though? Um, <laughs> well, I'm not really sure. I think I've picked up at least... No, I, I mean, in, in Heron Seller's Apprentice, um, I do four sections which are very definitely um, pastiches. Um, and um, the um, A.A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh pastiche is quite easy to spot, um, and um, a lot of people immediately spotted the P.G. Woodhouse pastiche, but there are two more. Maybe I should let people read the book, though, and, and see, if they can, uh, see if they can identify what they are. I think you need, need to do a version that has footnotes so people can track yeah. it all. Well, I do notes for readers, which are on my website, um, so actually, if anybody um, wants to read the books first and then find out what they are, they're they're actually in the um, they're actually in the notes for readers on Herring Seller's Apprentice. Excellent. We will link to those. Um, so, more about Ethelred. Is he yeah. actually? Can he write? Is he a good writer? Well, I don't know. Um, I think that um, I I think that all writers tend to base characters on themselves. 
So F already is probably um, no better, no worse than I am. Um, it's slightly worrying, actually, this business of, um, you know, when, when I'm writing, I realize that I'm probably writing about myself, um, because I do tend to write about these rather dysfunctional males um, who have to be guided in their efforts by women. Um, and I'm not terribly sure where this comes from. I think maybe I'd rather not um, speculate on that too much. Oh, that's all of life, that is. <laughs> Well, it's a bit unusual to have two narrators in a mystery novel. It has its advantage in that you can conceal things from the reader for longer. But you're careful to maintain a distinct narrative voice for both. How did you set about doing that? Yeah, um, I, I, I think you're right that it is relatively unusual um, in, in a crime novel, which is odd because crime does seem to offer itself naturally to um, multiple voices. Um, because crime novels are usually about gathering evidence from, from a lot of sources. Um, I think I've always liked having two narrators, ever since I read John Fowles, The Collector, um, where he uses these two voices very, very effectively. Um, in crime, it, 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 it is, as you say, less common. Um, Barbara Vine uses it a bit, in a way, in Astor's book, but... Um, I can't think of many others. Oh, um, there's an American writer, Ryan David John, um, who has multiple viewpoints um, in acts of violence, um, though that's actually told in the third person rather than um, as two narrators. As to how you do it, um, I think you have to have a very clear idea in your head um, of how each character sounds. Um, and um, I would sort of refresh my memory of how Ethelred is supposed to sound um, by reading Anthony Powell. Um, I don't know how many people will know Anthony, uh, Anthony Powell, who is sort of writing in, in the UK and I suppose oh, the, the 40s and, and 50s mainly. Dance to the music of time, all that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Elsie, I think, was slightly easier. She comes from Essex, where I come from, so it wasn't so much of a problem to sort of summon up her voice. Um, but I, I think it is a matter of just sort of somehow um, keeping the two voices very clear in your own mind um, and almost just running through them before you actually um, set pen to paper for a, for a new chapter. I have to say that for me, Elsie is a New York Jewish book editor. I can hear that voice so <laughs> distinctly when I read her. She doesn't sound at all British. <laughs> oh, she's, she's, she's bossy enough for Essex, I think. Yeah, no, I can, I can actually, I can actually see her as that. Um, and interestingly, the the American covers um, do make her look a bit like um, an American uh, Jewish uh, book editor. So um, there, there, there's the the, um, uh, the illustrator there obviously saw the same thing. Well, your illustrator there uh, illustrates uh, New Yorker covers, so that would be his natural. I, I, yes, I think so. Yes, George Booth. Yeah. I have a question that's totally off script. Have you taught any history of mystery courses or because you your knowledge of the genre is just very extensive? Um, let me answer those sort of in two parts. Um, the first is no, I've, I've never I've never taught um, creative writing and I've never been on a creative writing course. Interestingly, I, it, it, it's like I've probably most. Um, writers. I'm sort of almost entirely self, self, self-taught. self um, I think that um, 
my knowledge is probably more superficial than, than it appears to you. You can always appear very knowledgeable about something in a book um, because inevitably you, you can be relatively selective about the information that you give out. And by actually being quite knowledgeable about Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and one or two others, you can actually make it appear um, that you're, you're really knowledgeable about the whole genre. Um, but I've done too many crime quizzes at conferences to fool myself that I actually really know that much. Uh, don't worry, we know all about that. We do it all the time. Um, well, in our interview with Geraldine Evans, who was our last guest, she's and also does mysteries. She said she didn't know who did it until she wrote the ending. What about you? Do you are your books plotted out before you start, or are you Yeah, um, I, mean, I think writers actually fall into two groups, those who claim um, to do a lot of detailed plotting and those who claim to do it by the seat of their pants. Um, Agatha Christie always said um, that she wrote the book first, read it, worked out who was the least likely person to have committed the murder, and then made it them. And I'm not sure I actually believe that, because I think the books are in many ways far too well plotted for it to be just a random person at the, um, at, at the end. Um, I'm probably at the other extreme. I always know when I set out um, on a book how it's going to end and who will have done it. Very often, um, I write the last chapter quite early on. I don't quite write the last chapter first, but I'll write the first two or three chapters, then I'll write, write the last chapter, and then I'll almost work at the book from both ends, a bit like sort of building a tunnel or something, um, until the two, the two halves meet in the middle. Um, and it's actually very important to me to know from the outset who's done it, because you need to get the reactions of all of the characters right as the book goes on. Um, and if you don't know which ones who've done it, um, very often those reactions are wrong, and it takes an awful lot of editing subsequently to, um, to, to get it right again. So I'm, I'm, sort of, um, I'm sort of a bit of a planner. Especially true in the first one, I think. Um, well, Ethelred's caught on a treadmill writing an endless series of books. Are you worried that you might grow like him? I think writers are a bit like actors. Um, you know, we all want to play Hamlet, but we know how grateful we should be for steady work in a soap opera. Um, I, I, I think a series, you know, is sort of a bit like the um, like like the soap opera. Um, Herring Seller's Apprentice, having said that, wasn't really intended to be part of the series. Um, as I think I said, I mean, Pam McMillan asked me to write a sequel. Um, I was flattered to be asked to write a sequel, so I did. Um, and then they offered me an advance for three books, so I, I <laughs> put their money. Um, and that's sort of a bit a bit how it works. Um, you don't necessarily plan um, that it should be a series when you write the first one. I, I rather wish, um, when I wrote the first one, that I had planned it, because I think I might have written one or two things rather differently. And this, again, is something that an awful lot of crime writers say about this series. If only I knew it was going to go to 12 books, um, you know, I wouldn't have given my writer this particular feature, a limp or a stammer or something, that I was going to have to carry on through, through, the, entire, through the entire series. Um, and certainly anybody who's read Herring Seller's Apprentice will know that there's one thing that I do towards the end that I definitely would not have done 
um, if I'd been planning to um, to turn the thing into a series. But again, I won't give away I won't give away precisely what that thing was. There we are. Well, we'll take a break now and listen to some music. Then we'll ask Glenn about being a new Macmillan writer and Great. about his Thanks. latest works. Beneath the Iron Hill of Pagan Rome by Harlan Williams on the Magnitude album The Glass Desert. You can find it on the magnitude.com website. All right, Len, you write more than the Herring Mysteries. Would you tell us about your novel, A Very Persistent Illusion? Yeah, I, um, A Very Persistent Illusion is, is a standalone novel, and I think the, the first thing I have to say about it is, is that it's not crime. Um, this causes quite a lot of confusion in, in bookshops um, where um, the booksellers tend to put it on, on the crime shelves. Um, and I have no idea what crime readers then actually make of it. Um, it's, it's philosophical almost, I suppose, rather than crime. Um, the narrator is Chris Sorensen. He's a middle manager in an academic institution. Um, he has a flat above a gym which he uses as a substitute for actually using a gym, um, and a classic sports car with a dodgy wing mirror. Um, he is basically trying not to grow old. Um, the, the book is a sort of long epiphany moment when um, he's forced to confront what his life has become and the extent um, to which it isn't what he thinks it is. The, the original name for the book was actually going to be Reality Check. Um, and in some ways, 
I think that actually sort of summarizes um, what, what, what goes on in the book, far more than a very persistent illusion. A very persistent illusion is, of course, a quote from Einstein um, about reality being an, an illusion, but a very persistent one. <laughs> well, how do you use the study of philosophy to further the storyline in this book? Yeah, um, the, the, the starting point was very much um, René Descartes. Um, and what would happen if you actually lost your belief in reality? Um, Descartes argued, sorry, very, very briefly, um, that we couldn't really be certain that anything is real. Um, we know nothing about reality. We only know about how we perceive reality. Um, when we look at a sunset, I mean, this is an old question, but when we look at a sunset, is the red. I perceive the same red that you perceive. Um, you know, how do I know the sun is actually there? How do I know you are actually there? Um, and you know, if we can believe dreams are real at the time, how do we know we're not dreaming now? These were the sort of questions that Descartes um, was, was raising. And Descartes argued that the only thing we can be absolutely certain of is our own existence. We think, therefore we are. Um, now, Descartes thought you could take this basic truth, cogito ergo sum, um, and then rebuild your understanding of reality on it. Um, but he leaned heavily on the idea that God wouldn't lie to you, um, which 400 years on is perhaps no longer the showstopper that it was when Descartes put it forward in the, in, in the 17th century. So... Somebody reading Descartes now could easily be left simply with the idea um, that our own existence is the only thing you can be really certain of um, and that you could reasonably doubt almost everything that your senses um, are telling you is there. Um, and the novel flaws, in effect, what would happen um, if that was the philosophy you were actually living by day by day? Um, and that just seemed a, a rather a rather interesting idea, so I, I wrote the book around it. So have you had a long-term interest in philosophy, or was it just kind of the quote that struck you? No, I've, I've had a fairly long-term interest, again, um, rather like with crime fiction. I wouldn't claim to be any any expert, but I did read quite a lot of, of Descartes um, and Barclay um, and Russell um, and, 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 and others before I actually wrote the book. Um, to try to get the philosophy as right as I possibly um, as right as I possibly could. Um, one philosophy book that particularly impressed me was by um, a Cambridge professor named Simon Blackburn, um, who wrote a book called Think, which sets out um, many of the basic problems in philosophy, and which I would really recommend to anyone um, who, who's you know sort of starting out and has an interest in that in that subject. Sorry, but if I can just repeat the name of the book, it's called Think by Simon Blackburn. Um, and after a very persistent illusion was published, I did actually send a copy to Simon Blackburn and say, "What did he think?" And he didn't actually tell me I was wrong. So um, <laughs> hopefully, I got I got I got a reasonable amount of it right. Good, excellent. So, do you feel like Chris and Ethelred both distanced themselves from reality a bit? kind of live in their own heads? Um, yes. Um, I, 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 think, um, I, I think they both do um, in very different ways. I think Chris distances himself from reality in a much more structured way um, than Ethelred. 
Um, but they, they both do live in their own sort of dream world. And again, coming back to my earlier point, if um, all characters in, um, in books are really a bit like the author, um, <laughs> I guess I must distance myself from reality a bit as well. Maybe in order to become a writer, you have to distance yourself um, a bit reality and sort of live in this dream world with your with your characters. I don't know. You definitely invite your readers in as well, so we, we're all guilty. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so you also write short stories. Where do yes. they fit into your overall work? Are they more Ethelred, or are they other experiments for you? Yeah, I've never really been able to fit Ethelred into a short story. I'm, I'm not quite sure why. People have said to me, why don't I do a, um, an Ethelred and Elsie um, short? But um, I've just never come up with the right idea. Um, the short stories are very much a chance for me actually to go off in other directions entirely, um, usually not usually not crime. Um, the first short story I ever had published was something um, for a, a competition called the St. James Awards, which at that time was the, um, it, it, had, it had the largest prize money for any short story in, in uh, competition in the UK. Um, and I think I won, I can't remember, third or fourth prize, the year uh, Kate Atkinson um, won, won first prize. So a number of us who went in for that um, did actually go on and write, and write novels and write novels afterwards. Um, I've gone back to short stories a, a bit. I've just had one out in the latest Crime Writers Association um, anthology, which appeared this month. It's called uh, the, the anthology is called Guilty Consciences. Um, and I have another one coming out in another anthology in about three months' time. Um, it's rather nice, actually, writing short stories in between um, writing novels. They're, they're sort of ra- rather rather refreshing, sort of like going out for a, a little jog in the park rather than doing a marathon. So you were published by Macmillan New Writers. When this yeah. imprint was launched, it got some criticism because it cut out agents altogether. Anyone could submit a story, and the contracts were non-negotiable. How's the imprint treated you, and how would Elsie feel about them? Yeah, um, it, it's worked for me, I suppose, is, is all I can really say. I mean, it's got me five books published so far. Um, contrary to the rumours at the beginning of Macmillan New Writing, um, they pay pretty much the standard royalties, the contracts are pretty much on the standard terms. Um, and for all books after the first two, I've had, again, pretty much standard advances. I've had a great editor, Will Atkins, um, good, you know, good PR, um, and lots of nice reviews. So um, what's not to like, as they say? Most of the criticisms I've actually heard of Macmillan New Writing are basically the criticisms almost every writer makes um, of almost every publisher, um, which are sort of along the lines of um, they didn't push the book hard enough, um, they worry too much about sales figures and you know, not, not enough about the quality of the writing. But um, that tends, I, I, I think that is a criticism of the state of publishing um, these days rather than, rather, than one particular, rather than one particular imprint. Um, on the whole, I think the writers I know um, who've been with Macmillan New Writing have been um, at least as happy as the writers at, at any other imprint. You've been lucky, I think, with your covers, both here and in the US. Do you have a favourite? Um, 
I, I, I think I, I like all of the covers in, in different ways. Um, Mark Thomas's covers um, for the books published in the UK, I think, are absolutely great. I mean, I, I, and I, I, I bought the, the original sort of artwork um, for them. Um, the last two have had um, slightly different covers by, by, a different, by a different artist, in a sort of Art Deco style, which, which is also rather nice. Um, and we've sort of touched on George Booth's um, New Yorker-style covers for the, um, for the for the for the U.S. Um, for the U.S. editions. Um, with some of the earlier covers, people occasionally said to me they look a bit like children's um, mm, uh, novels with, with those covers. Um, and I can sort of see why. And if anybody's actually seen my covers and thought, "Ah, that's a children's book," well, then let me. Um, reassure them now that it, that it isn't. Um, but I actually rather like the covers. I, I think you know any criticism just shows it's difficult to please everyone all the time. Really, was there any cover you think did not work? No, not not really. I mean, as, as I say, um, with, with some of the earlier covers, people were a bit uncertain about what what the plot is. But um, the the. Uh, to put it round the other way, the cover I think I like best is the cover for um, A Very Persistent Illusion, um, where Chris, in his sports car, is vanishing into a poster on the wall. Um, and I thought that was very clever. Um, and I, I absolutely loved that one. Well, you recently released the latest Herring book, The Herring on the Nile. Would you tell us a little bit about Ethelred's latest adventures? Yeah, um... Ethelred decides to um, research a new book uh, by taking a trip on the Nile. Um, he ends up with a spare ticket and invites Elsie. Uh, somebody gets shot, um, and they rather um, they rather take it from there. Um, I, I think I've sort of um, said that um, my titles um, in the past had sort of tended to mirror Agatha Christie titles. Um, so I had ten little herrings, and I had the herring in the library, and then um, on, on to um, herring on the Nile. But on the whole, in the past, the plots hadn't particularly mirrored Christie plots. Um, it was just that I'd taken those titles and put in the occasional Christie reference. Um, herring on the Nile was the first time that I'd actually thought, right, let's take a Christie plot, not... Um, not parody it exactly, because I have too much respect for Agatha Christie to want, want to do a parody. Um, but let's take certain elements of that plot um, and put them into a book taking place in the, in, in, in the present day in the same sort of setting. Um, so as in Death on the Nile, um, in Herring on the Nile, um, they um, go uh, upriver um, to, to Aswan, um, there are all sorts of suspicious characters on the boat, and Christie fans will recognise one or two very specific incidents, um, which, as I say, I, I have lifted and put into my book. Um, but the overall plot and the solution um, to, the, to, to the mystery um, are actually very different from Christie, as indeed I think probably is the, um, is, is the manner of, of telling the story. Did you find adding the Christie elements to be 
more restrictive to your writing, or was it more of a an, an interesting challenge for you? Oh no, it, it, it's great fun. Um, it, it, it's nice to sort of be able to pay homage to one of one of the great one of the great writers, um, and it's also rather nice um, putting in. Um, all sorts of little references for people out there that you know will know Christie even better than than you do. Um, so that you know the um, there, there, there's a, a book um, that somebody is reading on the um, on the boat called Snow on Desert's Face, for example. Um, which, if anybody has read Death on the Nile, um, they will know somebody is, is, has just written um, in that particular novel. So. Um, a totally fictitious novel from uh, Death on the Nile finds its way through to Herring on the Nile and um, ends up being read on the boat. Excellent. All right, let's hear about what you're writing now. What can you tell us? Um, Yeah, writers sort of tend to be a bit cagey um, about what they're writing at the moment. I think um, we've almost got a superstition that if we talk too much about it, it won't it won't happen. Um, either we'll never get round to writing it, or um, the publisher won't accept it, or, or, or whatever. Um, but um, I can say that the next one um, that I'm working on at the moment takes a very different direction. Um, it's not part of the Ethelred and Elsie series. Um, indeed, it's, it's historical crime rather than crime set in the present day. Um, and it's set in the 17th century. And in the 17th century in England, or in 1658 specifically, uh, when the book takes place, um, England was basically awash with plots. Um, I don't know how well people will know the period, but um, 1658 is the year of the death of Oliver Cromwell. So Cromwell, having in effect ruled a British republic for 10 years, um, dies and suddenly everything is, is thrown into turmoil. Nobody knows whether the monarchy is going to be restored or whether Cromwell's son will, will take over um, or whether somebody else um, will sort of become, um, in effect, uh, a dictator or whether Parliament will be recalled and you know, it will become a proper, a proper republic again. Um, and everybody is busy switching sides as fast as they possibly can, um, trying to work out what's going to happen. And in the middle of all of this, of course, a murder occurs. Um, and the person who's murdered appears to be a spy. Um, but the question is, is he a parliamentary spy? Is he a royalist spy? What, 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 what is he? Um, and my narrator, a young lawyer named um, John Gray, um, has to work it out. But in the, um, in the spirit of um, all the best detective stories, um, he's pretty sure that everybody is lying to him. Um, and he has to try and work out what the truth is. Excellent. And there are plenty of plots for you to choose from to to muddy the waters, I suspect. Oh, absolutely. The waters are as muddy as you could possibly wish. (laughs) Well, it's obvious you're a fan of mystery novels as a whole. Has being on the other side of the page as a writer changed your perception of the genre? Yeah, I think it has. Um, as I say, I came to writing really via humor rather than, r- rather than crime. Um, and I have read a lot more crime and, um, than I, since I started writing than I, than, I did, than I did before. And I think I've discovered, um, I, I think I've discovered the sheer sort of diversity um, of the crime genre. Um, you know, there are lots of people writing, I suppose, fairly similar things to um, to what I write, uh, humorous, cozy crime. 
Um, people like Malcolm Price, who writes the Aberystwyth series, um, Chris Ewan, um, who writes the Good Thieves Guide too, and he's done Amsterdam, Vegas, Venice, um, and I think I saw another one um, out very recently, um, and, and Colin Bateman. Um, and I've also read um, much more, I think much more widely, even of sort of the classics. So um, it's a terrible omission to make, but I had not read Raymond Chandler um, until I started, until I started, sorry, and, until I started writing Crime. Um, and he's wonderful, superb. Um, there are also a lot of other writers um, who were writing again in the 40s and 50s, people like um, Edmund Crispin, who, who I hadn't read. Um, so um, I think that becoming a crime writer, I think feeling the need then to, to explore the genre um, has actually taught me quite a lot about it, its richness and, 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 and its variety um, and led me to read an awful lot of books that I probably wouldn't have read, wouldn't have read otherwise. I find the same inter- interviewing so many different authors. I do a lot broader reading than I used to. Yes, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> but it's actually been delightful because I've found so many new interests that I never thought I'd have. But where can people find out more about your work if they're wanting to, to explore and download and purchase? Yeah, um, a good starting point is my website, um, www.lctyler.com. Um where um, there are notes on all of my books, I think, um, a little bit of uh, biographical stuff, um, and one or two pieces, including something on my dog, which I'm sure people will find terribly interesting. Um, it's a cute dog. Cute dog, yeah. Nice, nice if, 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 you, if you've got a dog, then go to my website for one or two nice dog photographs, I think. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. Right. Well, thank you very much for for, for, for inviting me. It's been great fun and they've been really great questions. Thank you. Thank you. We will include links to Elsie Tyler's website in the show notes. And also on the website, we're going to post a poll asking you about your favorite amateur detectives. Visit us online at www.thebookstacks.org to vote. That was a good interview with Lamb. Perhaps we can persuade Miller to include one of his books in a future cozy mystery discussion at Bookstacks. She's chosen the next books already. For October, she's lined up The Killings at Badger's Drift by Carolyn Graham. And for November, the group discussion will focus on The False Inspector Due by Peter Lovesy. Everyone's welcome to join the discussions. Check out our website for dates and times, or visit the Bookstacks pub in Second Life, and check out the notice board. So, Simeon, Amazon has put the technology and publishing world into a dither once again. They just announced their new e-reader slash tablet, a handheld colored display tablet at less than $200 U.S. That's some pretty aggressive pricing, especially when compared to Apple's iPad. Yes. Um, does that mean you're getting it, Kay? I'm very, very tempted because of the price, but I'm hesitant because it's a first-generation technology. Mass adoption by the public usually exposes problems in a device that are fixed by the second generation. What about you, Simeon? Are you going to ask Santa to put one in your Christmas stocking this year? I can't, just not out in the UK. Legal issues with its use of the cloud, as I understand it. 
Of course, they're introducing some new basic e-ink versions as well, sans that tiny keyboard that they have. I don't think the keyboard will be missed. Oh, too true. The keyboard is appalling on the older models. Just a waste of space. What do you think of their size, Kay? I think that's another big advantage over the iPad. If you want to curl up with an e-book or even watch a movie, the size of the Kindle Fire seems much more comfortable to hold on to for an extended period of time. Yeah, it's a lot easier to slip into your pocket, too. iPads always struck me as either too big or too small. Never just right. Okay, let's close the show before we talk me into going ahead and getting one. Don't forget to check out our show notes at www.thebookstacks.org. Off the Shelf, produced by K.K. Berardi and Simeon Beresford for Radio Real. The introductory music was 1500 Tons by Burning Babylon from their album Stereo Mashup. We leave you with this piece, Hogaton 14, by the Eternal Jazz Project from their album Gratis Jazz. Both songs are available on the Magnatune label. You can learn more about Magnatune and their artist at their website, magnatune.com. This show is licensed under a 3.0, no derivative, Creative Commons license.